Welcome to The Briefing. It's Wednesday, the 29th of July. In today's briefing, you're going to get a very real sense of the heartbreaking scenario playing out in Melbourne's nursing homes right now. I've never felt as helpless and hopeless in in my whole life. I'm starting to understand what World War II must have been like. That in-depth story in just a moment. And Annika, the aged care crisis is the number one story in our news headlines today. Yes, Tom, specialist medical teams trained in disaster management are actually being sent in to help with Victoria's aged care crisis. They've assisted uh, in uh, in activities around the country and uh, they are the best of the best. They are the SAS of the medical world. That was the Federal Health Minister, Greg Hunt, speaking yesterday. More than 900 people in 84 homes have caught COVID-19 in Victoria, while 39 of that state's 83 deaths are residents of aged care centres. There was a slight bit of good news yesterday, 384 cases in the state, which is a little bit lower, and six deaths, but four of those were in aged care. This situation is taking a toll on everyone. State Health Minister Jenny McCarkos was briefly reduced to tears while giving an update yesterday. I know they have been particularly distressed to see uh, the rising toll um, of deaths uh, at that facility. Uh, So, I'm sorry. Yeah, so full on. Dan Andrews was also pretty emotional about it yesterday. Along with the disaster management medical teams, we know medical staff from Melbourne hospitals have also been redeployed into these aged care centres. Yeah, it's incredible to think the same team that went in to help with the 2002 Bali bombing, they're sort of a, a quick reacting team that go in to help with natural disasters, are being sent to Victoria because this is sort of getting to the level where they're, they're worried it will get out of control. Yeah, we'll find out more about that in just a moment. And over before it began. Leave now. Leave now. Don't come near me. Don't come near me. Leave the domain. So that's police in Sydney dragging away Black Lives Matter rally organiser Paddy Gibson before the rally, which was deemed unlawful in court. About 50 protesters, all clad in masks, were outnumbered by hundreds of police. Six of them were arrested. As we said all along, um, we are not anti Uh, the right to protest. This is about public safety. Um, At the end of the day, we are in the middle of a pandemic. That's the New South Wales Assistant Police Commissioner, Mick Willing, and the police certainly clamped down very quickly on what turned out to be a very small protest yesterday. Scientists counting the cost of the summer bushfires say it was one of the worst wildlife disasters in living memory, with nearly three billion animals lost or displaced. It's such a huge number. Among them were 143 million mammals, 2.4 billion reptiles... 180 million birds and 51 million frogs. Earlier this year, the World Wildlife Foundation estimated the number was just above a billion. That's since been revised up because it only focused on New South Wales and Victoria. Yeah, and I remember seeing the pictures of koalas being burnt to death from Kangaroo Island. So lots of other parts of the country were really affected. It's going to take years to recover from that. That's devastating numbers there. And Twitter has suspended Donald Trump Jr. The president's son won't be able to tweet for 12 hours after sharing a video of several right-wing doctors spouting some debunked coronavirus claims. Here's how the video started. We implore you to hear this because this message has been silenced. There are many thousands of physicians who have been silenced from telling the American people the good news about the situation. Among the claims made by the group uh, that you don't need a mask to stop this virus spreading and that hydroxychloroquine is a cure. 
Twitter says it violates its coronavirus misinformation rules and it's been doing its best to pull them down. All right, in a moment, the horror story unfolding in Melbourne's aged care centres. One of the deadliest threats of the pandemic is unfolding right now. Yeah, the number of people getting COVID-19 in Victorian aged care facilities is frightening. The number is now more than 900. Some of the stories we've seen are unacceptable and I wouldn't want my mum in some of those places. So the numbers are changing fast, but at the time of recording this episode, over 84 nursing homes in Victoria had active COVID-19 cases and 39 people have died. To put that in perspective, think back to April when Newmarch House in Sydney was making headlines. 17 people lost their lives from that facility after 70 people got COVID-19. Melbourne has 12 times that number of aged care cases and more than twice the number of deaths. Yeah, many people hoped that Newmarch House would be the tragic wake-up call that would stop more old people dying, and that's clearly not the case. To give you a very real sense of how that's playing out in people's lives, you're going to hear the story of Nicholas Babousis, whose dad Paul died after a fall at St Basil's. He was 79. As you're about to hear, there were some serious mistakes made. There's now more than 80 cases from that centre. Nick, thanks so much for joining us on the briefing. We're so sorry for your loss. Can you tell us what happened? Basically, what happened was um, coronavirus entered uh, the St. Basil's uh, facility probably now, uh, probably around two weeks ago. There were a variety of tests done in that time. In my dad's case, it was it was uh, negative initially. There was a bit of a an error, I think, later on in terms of that. Uh, the testing regime that they did and they had to redo some tests and uh, his second test came back inconclusive. Uh, we were given some comfort at the time that uh, all the residents uh, that were hadn't tested positive were isolated in a wing uh, away from uh, where the positive tests were because they were in the, initially in the dementia unit, which is the high care unit, and my dad was in the, the medium care area supposedly giving comfort that that area was, was safe, it was the safe zone. Moving forward a couple of days, um, we were told there's going to be a third test, which never, I don't think it ever happened. On Wednesday, uh, the government uh, appointed personnel uh, moved into the home. So all the, the personnel from the, the previous, uh, what's called the regime, uh, moved out and then were quarantined. Uh, one of the, the biggest issues for us was lack of communication, miscommunication, couldn't get any information. From my point of view, I was at my wit's end and I, I put a tweet out to see whether I can get any, any help from the media to, to actually uh, raise the focus on this because we weren't getting you know, any information at all on our loved ones. On that Friday, I got a phone call from, uh, as I said, from the, the team that was put together, a new team, I assume, because it was two days after they came in, uh, that a communication team had been put together to give us uh, daily updates of the condition of our loved ones. I was told that my dad was comfortable, was in his room. Uh, he was away from, uh, I guess, uh, where all the other infected uh, residents were. Uh, if we move then forward 24 hours, I got the same phone call again, basically intimating that uh, nothing has changed, that it was in his room and everything was okay. Um, I was absolutely shocked when I got that phone call. Um, I asked whether the person was at St. Basil's uh, that was giving me this information. I was told no, that person was in South Australia uh, and the communications was being uh, you know, conducted or organised through, through them. 
And the reason I was shocked was because seven hours earlier, I got a phone call from the Northern Hospital to tell me that my dad was severely ill, fighting for his life, and the odds were that he wouldn't make it through another 24 hours. Leading up to the outbreak, did you think enough was being done at St Basil's to well, keep this out? They definitely didn't do enough. I mean, at least four people that I know of, four residents have died from supposedly the safe area, the isolated area of the building. Whether my dad w- was positive or not at the time, you know, in the last few days prior to his admission to hospital, I will never know because he was alone in his room. Um, he needed care in terms of going to the toilet, um, of eating, of uh, showering, of getting his medication. I believe that more than likely he wasn't given any of that attention because all the attention obviously and you know, was 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 given to, to the high care area, the one that, that was chaotic at the time. But I don't know now if my dad was in there, you know, surrounded by his own urine. I don't know. This, these are the things that go through my mind now as people come out with all their various stories and it actually it absolutely saddens me, to be honest with you. Mm. And how difficult was it for you and your family not being able to visit and to be there in those final days? Oh, it, was, it was indescribable, to be honest with you. It was, it was just, it was horrific. I mean, we were repeated phone calls uh, weren't answered. We were given a FaceTime number to utilise so we can visually seen. Uh, the FaceTime calls, most of them weren't picked up. One that was picked up, uh, the people said they were too busy at the time to put me through to my dad. We hadn't seen him for at least three, maybe four weeks. The only comfort for me is that I, I, I did get some time with him uh, via FaceTime when he was in hospital and I was able, to, I guess, to say my goodbyes to him uh, via that. So, Nick, how did he ultimately pass away? Well, when uh, eventually he made it uh, into the hospital, and uh, he actually, the only reason he, he ended up being in hospital at the time, because that night he actually fell and hit his head, and and they took him to hospital just for observation to ensure there was nothing wrong with his head, and they did scans and they didn't find anything wrong uh, from the fall, but what they did find was that his temperature was extremely high, his oxygen levels were low, his blood pressure was extremely low, uh, his heartbeat was irregular, basically all the symptoms and signs of, of COVID. And uh, they weren't sure at the time that it was COVID, but because he'd come from an institution where there was, it was rife, obviously they tested him. And uh, later on in the afternoon, we were told that uh, the test came back as COVID positive. These people supposedly were isolated for their safety. But as I said earlier, there's four people from that area that have now passed away. So how many others in that area are now infected and their relatives you know, might not know? I'm, I'm not sure. And he was only taken to hospital because he had a fall, but ultimately it may have been COVID that ended his life. It, yeah, it definitely was COVID because the, the hospital confirmed there was no injury sustained. They did a brain scan and uh, everything was fine from the fall. Oh, my goodness. That's that's a terrible situation that they got it wrong in the aged care home. It was, yeah, it's, it's almost, you know, I don't want to, you know, come up with words, but it's, it's almost the house of horrors, to be honest with you, right now, the, the, how things are turning out. I mean... Initially, I thought maybe it's just a, an individual issue in terms of my dad, specific. But people are coming out now in droves with similar examples. And uh, it's not fair that these people had to live the last day of their lives the way they did. So there's so many questions to ask. I mean, there's the question about how they should be managing these facilities, what should happen going forward. But this is a, 
a live situation right now and there'd be so many other people in a similar situation to the one you're in, not sure how their loved ones are being looked after and whether they really have COVID or not. Correct. And as I said, I was comforted by the fact that the the government-appointed personnel came into the institution. There's an argument to be made that maybe it should have happened earlier because the numbers that were reported in the media uh, were much lower than the numbers we were being told directly from St Basil's in terms of the positive tests. Now, Nick, when you see people refusing to wear masks or even some calls from economists that we should just let this run through the community, obviously at great risk to the elderly, what's your reaction to that? Uh, To be honest with you, it just completely infuriates me. I mean, to me now, it's no longer, you know, until recently, you know, it was a game of stats for me. You know, I used to see the stats and... uh, there was never a human face attached to those stats, and now there's a human face attached to those stats. And uh, for people to blatantly ignore the rules and the requests that have been put forward by, you know, the people that supposedly know the experts, and uh, under the guise of, you know, freedom of, you know, to expression to do what they want or whatever, oh, I just it just infuriates me to be honest with you. And. Uh, I'm hoping that people that do the right thing, they're not invincible. I mean, if you think you're young and you're not going to get it, think of all the others that you're going to come in contact with that are maybe not as fortunate as you. Wow. All right, Nick, thanks for speaking to us and, yeah, all the best for the next couple of days. Thank you so much, guys. Appreciate it. Such an intense story there from Nicholas. We just want to bring you one more quick perspective on that aged care disaster playing out in Melbourne. Thomas Pasakos's mum is also in St Basil's She's doing okay now, but it's been a very rough ride. Thomas believes we need to get everyone out of aged care in Melbourne and into hospitals. Thomas, can you give us a sense of how difficult it's been for families who have loved ones in aged care during this COVID crisis? Right from the start, I assume, it's even been difficult to visit. Uh, We did have family visitation rights up until last month sometime. I can't remember the exact date. Then when the state government announced the lockdown, of course, they, they, these were uh, uh, forbidden. So we spoke to mum on phone, on, on Skype, but she's disorientated. She looks at the screen and she doesn't know what's going on. But at least we can see her and she can see our faces. However, when the outbreak started and all staff were stood down and sent home, communication stopped. Answering of phones um, did not happen. I called so many times. My sister, the poor soul, she called even more than, than I did. She would drive to the aged care facility on a daily basis and just knock on the door and just wait to speak to anyone. Feedback we received was mixed. It was uh, inconsistent and at many times contradictory. Just knowing and, and hearing on the news the escalation and the penetration of the virus at the facility and not knowing if your own mother or father is one of those people is just incredibly painful. I've never felt as helpless and hopeless in, in my whole life. I'm starting to understand what World War II must have been like. I just felt horrible, especially for my sister that was so, so close to mum and still is. It's just an incredible experience. I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. What do you think could be done by some of these homes to, I guess, alleviate some of that pain you're talking about? What would you really like to see improved? Okay. It is openly clear 
that St. Basil's had absolutely no disaster recovery plan. So when the outbreak hit, they just didn't know what to do. So staff, whether they had PPE or not, they weren't using it. And those that were using it were probably using it incorrectly. They didn't know how to isolate patients and they didn't know how to organize the provision of care for patients in their rooms. They didn't know how to distribute food, how to keep patients clean, especially patients with dementia, many of them who suffer from incontinence. These sort of things are just basic principles of running any business, let alone a healthcare facility. It is absolutely disgraceful. And the onus for this is back into the ownership and the management of the organization, any organization. The Victorian government has legislated now that there is a criminal responsibility for directors of businesses who lose lives. Well, how many lives have been lost at St. Basil's because of incompetence, lack of planning and lack of organization? Somebody needs to learn from this. Somebody needs to be held accountable for this. And somebody, led by the government and the commissioner, to ensure that these things do not happen and a disaster recovery plan is online for everyone to see at every one of these healthcare facilities, at least. Thomas, thanks for speaking to us and, and sharing your story. Thank you for giving me the opportunity, Tom Annika. That was Thomas Pasakos, a Melbourne man concerned for his mother in St Basil's aged care centre. Annika, what has been the response to this unfolding disaster so far? The federal government, who actually run most of the aged care in this country, have really taken over after what's going on in Victoria. So they're sending in army workers, they're going to send out five million face masks and reusable face shields to Victoria. The Prime Minister himself has had to cancel a visit. He was planning to be up in Queensland this week to deal with this crisis as it sort of tears through more homes. So sending more workforce and more protections, but I guess it's really started to expose some cracks between the state and federal governments that we haven't seen before during this crisis. Yeah, saw a very different reaction to this yesterday from Dan Andrews compared to the federal health minister, Greg Hunt. Yeah, Dan Andrews actually said he wouldn't want his mum to be in one of these facilities and uh, both Greg Hunt, the health minister, and Richard Colbeck, the aged care minister, snapped back about that. Greg Hunt was close to tears. He was one of a number of ministers yesterday who got quite emotional about this issue and he said he wouldn't have a bad word heard against the staff, who are no doubt working under extreme pressure, but there's clearly been some gaps and some things go wrong. Well, we'll be watching that one very closely. Tomorrow on The Briefing, we'll take a look at mental health and the impact of the pandemic on the mental health around the country. We'll speak to Ian Hickey. Look forward to catching you then. A Podcast One production.